Please turn to me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. The letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so they could then live out those doctrines for the glory of God. We're now in the heart of the application section of this letter, and it's not only been very practical, but it's also been very challenging. And the call is to rise to the challenge because this is who we are and this is what we do. And love for Christ compels us to continue on in our quest to honor Him with our fast and fading life. And while no one here will be perfect this side of heaven, and while we will all struggle with sin and battle against sin until the day that we die... Look, our aim is clear, our direction is clear, our love is clear, and our lifestyle is clear. Christ. Glorifying, honoring Christ. And so we fight sin and we battle for the God-honoring life because again, this is who we are and love compels us. Last time, Paul implored us to be spirit-filled Christians who do the will of God. What does that look like? Well, it looks like many things, and we see those things in the Word of God. But then, as we saw last time, Paul got specific. And he told us that God's will for us in Christ is to be filled with the Spirit. To sing in the heart, and then that expresses itself out loud. To give thanks always for all things, and then to submit to one another in the fear of God. Today... Paul continues that line of thought when he specifically addresses wives. Now, are you ready for this? Amen. Amen. I heard an amen. Just wait. Wait. Randy, I think that was you maybe. (laughs) It wasn't Randy. Be careful to not get the big head because Paul, husbands, Paul is going after you next. And uh, that'll be fun. Let's look at what he writes. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So, here in today's passage, the first thing we see is the what, which is this, that wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, before we get to that, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 for just a second. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, and you can turn there if you would like. Genesis 2, 21. Up to this point in Genesis 2, God created Adam and everything else except for Eve. Eve hasn't been created yet. So it's still day 6, and Adam is there in the garden. And everything that God has made up to this point is good, but look. In 2.18, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And the reason it's not good is because man doesn't yet have a suitable helper. Note that this doesn't mean that something was bad on day six. No, no. All it means is that it wasn't yet complete. And it couldn't be very good until it was complete. And that completion required a woman. See, Adam needs a helper. He needs an equal. He needs a helper to complement him in fulfilling the task of having dominion over the earth and of being fruitful and multiplying. Look, God made everything male and female initially except for man. And so God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. The Hebrew word for suitable helper is the word ezer konegno. And it means a helper like him or corresponding to him or worthy of him. And so that's what God does. A man named John Barnett said that God made you incomplete. 
That's interesting. He says, God created men and women to correspond to each other. We are similar, yet so different. Woman is man's completer, not his copy. And husbands and wives are to each other indispensable. And he's absolutely right. Now, we know that God has given some people the gift of singleness. And those with that gift are to embrace that gift and they're to use that gift for the glory of God. But that's a gift that not many have and that not many are able to have. So for most of us, we need each other. Husbands and wives, we need each other. And please note that this here in Genesis 2 is the institution of the first marriage, Adam and Eve. I mean, Adam and Eve aren't dating here. (laughs) No, they are married as indicated by the one flesh statement, which is only reserved for the marriage relationship. See, we, husbands and wives, we complete each other. Together, we fit. Together, we complement each other the way that God intended us to, just like Eve complimented Adam. So marriage is a gift. See that? Marriage is a gift from God to us, and we're called to treasure that gift, to cultivate that gift, to make the most of that gift that God has blessed us with. So look what happened in Genesis two twenty one through 24. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So look, God caused Adam to go to sleep, and while Adam slept, God went to work. Look what he did. God then took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. That's interesting because the English word rib doesn't really express what the Hebrew word is saying in this passage. I mean, when you think of a rib, you think of a bone, right? A a rib bone. In the Hebrew, the word is selah, or selah, and it's used 35 times in the Old Testament, and this is the only time that it's ever translated as rib. And 20 of those 35 times, it's translated as side. So what happened was this. God put Adam to sleep. God then took out of Adam some of his side, some bone and some flesh, and then God closed up the wound, divine surgery. In verse 23, Adam says it clearly. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So apparently God took bone and flesh from Adam and he made Eve out of that. So God took out a man some bone and flesh from his side. And verse 22, the rib, literally side, which the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman. The word for made is a Hebrew word for built. It's the same term used of a builder who takes stone and wood and builds a beautiful building. So God made a woman with all the loveliness and all the beauty and all the grace that a man could never imagine until he saw one. <laughs> I think it's interesting that God created the woman from Adam's side. One commentator said it like this. The woman was not made from the superior part of a man, that she might be thought to be above him and have power over him, nor from any inferior part as being below him to be trampled on by him, but out of his side, that she might appear to be equal to him, and from a part near his heart and under his arms, to show that she should be affectionately loved by him, and be always under his care and protection. So, Eve was made from Adam's side. She's now, she's a part of him. And now, God provided man with exactly what he needed, a helper, a 
companion, a, a perfect fit, taken from him for him and for his many needs. And isn't that like God to do that for us? I mean, what a, what a gift. It's a great gift. I mean, the need for a man was a woman, and the need for a woman is a man. And we perfectly complement each other when we follow God's divine plan for marriage for husbands and wives. God then brought her to the man. And what do you think Adam was thinking when he saw her? Any ideas? I mean, what do you think he was going through his mind at that moment? I mean, he saw giraffes and lions and crocodiles and deer and all these other animals all day long. And he's naming them all day long. And then after a little nap, God brings a perfect woman to him. And oh man, he had to have been blown away, right? And he was. He was. Look at his reaction in verse 23. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. This is recognized as a poem, a love song by Adam. So try to picture what's happening here. God brings this beautiful woman before him. So what does he do? He's overwhelmed. And so he just breaks out into poetry. Adam then says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That kind of talk refers to someone who's a part of the family. Adam then says, she shall be called woman. In the Hebrew, this word is isha, and it means soft. And this is Adam's first impression of the woman. And while men and women have the same nature and are equal, they are also different, and those differences should be celebrated. And look, when they come together, they perfectly complement each other. And so we now find that man has a perfect complement, the perfect partner, and Adam is very happy. And that's the way it should be. (laughs) Look what it says in verse 24. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And we're going to get into more of that next time. But this means that your spouse is to always be your number one earthly relationship. Always. That mom and dad are secondary. That you cling to each other. That you're committed to each other. That you work hard on your marriages, that you examine yourself and you do your part to expel sin from your marriage, that you're enraptured with your spouse and with your spouse alone. See, it means that your spouse is to always be your number one human relationship, always, always, always. Marriage is indeed a gift from God himself to us. Peter actually calls marriage the grace of life. One preacher says that marriage is the best that life has to offer. It's the best gift that God could ever give. And I say, aside from eternal salvation, I agree. He's right. I I hope you feel that way because he's right there. And we are called to treat it as such. And the question is, are you? Does your spouse know that you think marriage is the best gift that God could ever give because you treat your spouse like that? Question. Why does Paul deal with marriage here in Ephesians chapter 5 when talking about being spirit-filled and doing the will of God? Why? Here's why. Because it's so very important and because he needed to address it. No one here has a perfect marriage because we're all sinners. And so we need to be constantly working on our marriages. And if we're not constantly working on our marriages, then our marriages will be getting worse instead of better. It's true. Thus Paul's words here. So Paul first deals with wives. First we have the what, which is this, for wives to submit to their husbands. Now remember, in the previous verse, we're called to submit to each other in the fear of the Lord, which is a general principle for every Christian where we approach 
all our relationships with humility and selflessness and unselfishness and where we treat each other better than we treat ourselves. That, that's a call for all of us, generally speaking. But then here in verse 22, Paul gets specific. Wives to your husbands. Paul will go on in 6.1 to talk about children to their parents. I can't wait for that one. And then in 6.5, he's going to talk about bond servants to their masters. So Paul first lays out a general principle for every Christian, and then he gets specific of what that looks like within certain relationships. First, wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, obviously, that's a loaded term, right? That's been misrepresented and misunderstood by many. And then there are some who fully understand what it means, but they simply don't like it and they choose to ignore it. But it is biblical, and we do well to look at it. Literally, the verse says, wives to their own husbands. In some translations, you'll notice the word submit is in italics, and it's in italics because the word submit is not in the original text. However, the word submit is indeed in verse 21, and when it says wives to your own husbands, it's talking clearly talking about submission, and the context makes that very clear. And so that's your call as a wife. And the natural tendency is to rebel against this because ruling... And not submitting is one of the results of the curse when Adam and Eve sinned. And while man is given to sinfully overpowering the woman, look, the woman is given to sinfully desiring to control the man, and both of those are wrong, and both of those are sinful. And the call is to fight that tendency tendency, because you're spirit-filled, and you love the Lord, and you want to please Him, and you want to do His will. And so, wives... Your call is to submit to your husbands. The word submit is a Greek word, hupotasso. It means to line up under, to arrange under, to rank under. This word was originally used as a military term that spoke of soldiers giving up their rights to those in authority over them, where they just humbled themselves and willingly submitted to the one in authority. And that is a call for wives to their husbands. Titus 2.4 tells us that older women are to train younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their own husbands so that no one will malign the Word of God. 1 Peter 3.1 tells wives to be submissive to your own husbands. And please note that Peter says to do that even if your husband is disobedient to the Word of God because your godly behavior might be the thing that brings your husband to Christ. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then here in Ephesians, it says it yet again. So this command really is everywhere. So what exactly does the Bible mean when it says to submit? I mean, it's a loaded term. It's not a popular term. It's not an easy term to hear. So what does it mean? Let's first look at what submission is not. Submission does not mean that the wife becomes a slave. (laughs) Submission does not mean that the wife never opens her mouth, never has an opinion, and never gives any advice. No, the husband and wife are a team, and there there should always be a thorough, honest sharing of opinions and feelings, and it's always best to seek to come to a mutual agreement on issues because you indeed are a team. You're one. But note this, ultimate responsibility for decisions falls on the husbands because God has given him that role. Submission does not mean that the wife becomes a wallflower who folds up and allows her abilities to fall by the wayside. See, it doesn't mean that you have to kill your personality or become a robot or become boring or that you never ever can give your opinion. No. 
doesn't mean that. Submission does not mean that the wife should give in to every demand of her husband. Well, why not? Because ultimately, the wife answers to God. And if the husband calls her to clearly sin or to compromise her faith, she can't do that as a godly woman. Submit, we'll get into that more a little bit later. Submission does not mean that the wife becomes a doormat for the husband. And then this. Submission does not mean that the wife is inferior to her husband, not in any way. Men and women are absolutely equal in the eyes of God, totally, completely equal. But look, the wife makes a choice to place herself as an equal underneath another equal, her husband, in order that there can be order and function within the family. The whole purpose of it is so that it meets the design that God has already ordered. See, this isn't an argument that women are less important or that women have less dignity or less honor than men. Not at all. It's an argument about the role relationships which God has established for husbands and wives in the Word of God. So that's what submission is not. But what then is biblical submission? A man named Wayne Mack in his book, Strengthening Your Marriage, lists a few thoughts for us. One, Submission indicates that it's a wife's responsibility to make herself submissive. See, nowhere is the husband called to force his wife to be submissive. And husbands, don't ever say, honey, you need to submit to me. Not wise. Okay? Don't do that. (laughs) This is a command for the wife to submit willingly and lovingly. In the Greek, this word is in the middle voice, which emphasizes a willing submission of oneself, the willingness to relinquish one's rights to another, the wife to the husband. And the call is to do this because you desire to as a choice that you make as a woman of God, as a woman who wants to glorify God. But John, what if he's a hypocrite? Well, do your best to submit to him. But John, what if he won't take the lead and be that godly husband? Do your best to submit because that's God's call. But John, what if he's not a Christian? Do your best to submit and show him what Christ is like. See, God's desire here is very clear and it's very straightforward. Do everything you can to willingly submit to your husband. Two, submission is to be continuous. That means that submission is to be the constant lifestyle of the wife. See, notice that there are no qualifiers in this passage. It doesn't say submit, but only if you feel like it. Or it doesn't say submit, but only when it's convenient. It doesn't say submit, but only if he's a Christian. It doesn't say submit, but only do it every other day or every third day or every other weekend. No, it simply says submit. Three, wifely submission is mandatory, not optional. Now, if the wife is in danger, then please get to safety, of course. But the point here is that the wife's submission to her husband is not to be conditioned by her husband's abilities, talents, wisdom, education, or spiritual state. No, because regardless of that, the call remains the call. Four, submission is a positive concept, not a negative one. It emphasizes what the wife should do, not what the wife shouldn't do. That means that the wife sees herself as a part of her husband's team, that she isn't her husband's opponent who's always fighting him and who's always trying to outdo him, or that she isn't merely an individual going her separate way. No, but instead, she's her husband's helper, striving for the same goal, and so she lovingly allows her husband to lead the team and doesn't try to usurp his God-given authority. Five, submission involves the wife's attitudes as well as her actions. That gets really to the heart of the matter. See, submission is an inner quality of gentleness and godliness that affirms the leadership of the husband. It's an inner quality. Uh, it's a disposition. It's an attitude. 
Pastor Legan Duncan sums this thought up for us by saying this. Submission means three things. It means a recognition of a divinely given household order. Here's a woman who recognizes that God has given certain responsibilities to men and certain responsibilities to women in the marital relationship. First of all, she recognizes that. Secondly, she respects her husband's spiritual authority. She recognizes that God has established a certain order. Men are supposed to do certain things. Women are supposed to do other things in marriage. And she respects her husband spiritually. Thirdly, she makes an active effort to foster and appropriately respond to that authority. So it's an attitude that fundamentally recognizes that God made men and women differently, and he made them to function differently in marriage, and that there are certain things as masculine virtues and feminine virtues which need to be cultivated distinctly. And he's right. God clearly calls wives to submit to their husbands. It's, it's unavoidable. It's easy to see. And to not submit to your husband is rebellion against God, and it's sinful. Okay, how are you to do this? Look what it says, as to the Lord. See, ultimately, everything that we do goes back to our personal relationship with the Lord. How I treat Tiffany has implications for my marriage, but ultimately, I have to answer to God for that. And here... Paul is calling wives to remember that they will answer to God for how well they submit to their husbands. See, in a very real sense, when you're submitting to your husbands, you're really submitting to Christ. That as a woman is to be subject to the Lord himself, so she is to be subject to her own husband because ultimately she's going to answer to Christ for her actions. The end of verse 24 says that wives are to be subject to their husbands in everything, which means that this is to encompass every aspect of life. That said, we also know that Scripture interprets Scripture, and disobedience to God is always an exception to this. In everything except when it dishonors the Lord, of course. And again, Scripture makes that very, very clear. And so the phrase, as to the Lord, means that the wife's submission only goes so far as it glorifies God. And if submission to your husband would mean that you wouldn't glorify God, then guess what? Then you can't submit, and that's the qualifier. If your submission to your husband would be a clear sin against God and against his word. See, biblically, because God never condones sin, and because God never leads anyone into sin, your submission to your husband is to be in everything except that which would be clearly sinful. And at that point, you have to lovingly say, I must obey God over men, even over you. For example, if the husband says, I forbid you to go to church, you'd have to respectfully choose pleasing God over your husband at that point. Or if your husband said, I want you to participate in immorality, You can't do that. Or, I I want you to steal some clothes for me. Or, I forbid you to talk to our children about God. Then you'd have to respectfully choose pleasing God over submitting to your husband's sin in those areas. But in every other thing that isn't a sin, and as much as possible, for the glory of God, submission is to be continuous and unto Christ. Look, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he had her husband killed, he thought he'd gotten away with it. But when he was finally confronted and then repented of his sin, he said these very telling words. He said, against you, you only, Lord, have I sinned. And that's interesting, because David didn't just sin against the Lord, but primarily he knew that his ultimate crime was against God. And in like manner, wives need to realize that how they treat their husbands has everything to do with their relationship to Christ. 
Did you hear that? How you treat your husband has everything to do with your relationship to Christ. Everything. And if you say that you have a great relationship with Christ, but you don't submit to your husband, then you are mistaken. You can't have a great relationship with Christ if you're not doing that in a biblical, God-honoring way. Remember, ultimately, yes, this has a lot to do with you and your husband. But really, this has everything to do with you and God. And because you love the Lord, you will then submit to your husband. Look, wives, God is watching you. Hey, just wait. I think it's going to be three weeks I'm going to deal with a husband. So just wait. And with myself, too, by the way. But... God is watching. Being a godly, submissive wife in this biblical way is the right thing. It's the God-pleasing thing. It's the correct thing for a godly wife to do. And God knows what he's talking about. And when God looks at you and sees you living this out in whatever situation you find yourself in, it is truly pleasing and becoming in his sight. And he sees all of it. And that means something, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That means your husband might not get it, but guess what? God does. And God sees and God will reward you for honoring him and for doing what he wants you to do as a wife. So you submit to your husband as an act of love to the Lord. And so really, it's not because you love your husband that much. It's because you love Jesus that much that you submit. And so as I love the Lord, I'm willing to do whatever it is that he tells me to do. And so we see, we see that a wife's love for Christ motivates her to obey God in this way in submitting to her husband as much as she can in a biblical way, for the glory of God, as to the Lord. Okay, but why? Here's why. Because a husband is the head of the wife, verse 23. In other words, this is the design of God. This is the divine plan. The husband to be the head of the wife. What does that mean? Well, it means that in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, husbands and wives, the husband bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in God, a God-glorifying direction. He's to be the leader Because God gave him that role. More on that next week. The model of this is the Lord who is the head of the church. What did he do for the church? He gave himself for us. And the antithesis to this is male domination. So just as the head gives direction to the body, just as the head leads the body, just as the head has authority over the body, so too does a husband have headship over the wife. Again, talking about God-given leadership by the husband with the wife who is supposed to recognize that leadership and respond accordingly and willingly and even joyfully understanding God's design. The word for head is the Greek word kephale, and it's the word that's used for a literal head as well as someone who's in a position of authority or leadership. In this context, Paul is telling us that it's a husband who's to be the godly leader of the family. And while the husband and wife are indeed one, and while they're to function as a team in a wonderful and incredible manner, it's still true that the husband is called to be the head with the wife being in godly submission to him. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. It's interesting, because here we see that even in the Godhead, where there's a clear and undeniable equality, we see that Christ is subject to his Father. And it's in the same way that wives are to be subject to their husbands, equal, absolutely equal, but with different roles. And again, Man isn't superior to a woman, just as a father isn't superior to Christ. They are of the same essence. However, there's a divine order in the relative functions of the three persons of the Trinity. So it is fitting for God to ordain a divine order 
in the functions of a family. And look, God established that pattern from the very beginning when Adam was formed first and then Eve, 1 Timothy 2.13. Now God did that for a reason, and it all has to do with headship and with leadership. Now look, some husbands are weak, ineffective, and they're just plain lousy heads of their wives and of their families, but that doesn't change their call. I mean, every husband finds himself in a position of inescapable leadership. He can't successfully refuse to lead because that is not an option for him. And if he abdicates that responsibility, then he's in rebellion to God and he will be held accountable for that. This is how God designed marriage. And this is why God calls wives to submit to their husbands. Next, we have the example, and the example is Christ, who's the head and savior of the church, verse 23. Here, Paul shows us what he means when he talks about husbands being the head of their wives and why wives need to submit to their husbands. Look, you as a wife are to submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. And with the same willing heart that the church has in obeying Christ, the wife is to submit to the husband. And look, look what it says, in everything. And once again, Again, that means in everything except sin, which the Bible is very clear about, but it's an amazing thing to think about. The church, us, don't we gladly submit to Christ because we love Him so very much, right? Uh, It's a joy to do so. To the one who died to make us His. To the one who loved us enough to rescue us from eternal wrath. We submit to Him (coughs) gladly. It's not always easy, but we submit to Him gladly. Well, that's how the wife is called to submit to her husband. Question, when Christ was here, how did Christ lead the church as the head? Did he domineer? Did he rule with an iron fist? Did he scream and and yell until he got his way? Did he do that? Absolutely not. But as a head, Christ always led by his godly example. He served. He loved. He led. He cared. He sacrificed. Oh, and then he died for the church. And that's the way husbands are called to lead their wives and their family. Again, more on that next week. But look, no matter how well the husband does this, your call remains the same as a wife. To submit as a woman of God, because that's how God designed it to be from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. So wives, stop trying to be the head. Let your husband lead. Give him some encouragement. Pray for him. Stand beside him. Support him. If your husband doesn't lead, or be a good head, or fulfill his calling, fulfill his calling from God, then you do your best, your very, very best to follow these principles for your marriage anyway as unto the Lord. And then simply leave the rest to the Lord who sees. Because your call as a wife doesn't change. Look, after explaining the analogy, as Christ also is the head of the church, Paul adds this, he's a savior of the body. Why add that? I mean, he certainly doesn't mean that the husband is the savior of the wife. No, 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 only Christ is. So why say this here? Here's why, to assure wives and to exhort husbands. See, while Christ's role as savior is unique, he's our only savior, this is indeed an analogy. That husbands must sacrificially give themselves in love for their wives like our Savior did for us. And just as Christ gave himself for the church and laid down his life for the church, so are husbands to do the same for their wives because that's what good godly leaders do. What's the verdict? This. That just as a church is subject to Christ, so is the wife to be subject to her husband. One summarized it like this. 
Wives, you may be more educated, more gifted, more vibrant in your personality, and you're a whole lot prettier. (laughs) But you need to die to that. Amen to that, anybody? No? Okay. Too serious, right? Too serious. You need to die to that and be filled with the Spirit of God. Until you as a wife are filled with the Spirit of God, there's no ability within you to control the urge that comes from Adam to take control and to dominate. You can't control it. But remember, He will strengthen you with power in the inner man to do what you never could do before when you're now willing to accommodate Him and say, God, this is your design. I don't like it particularly, but I choose to do it. And God says, great, I will meet you at the point of your obedience and I'll do something in you that'll blow you away. I will fill you with the fullness of God. See, only when a wife is submitting to the Lord Jesus and to her husband can the family ever have any hope of being functional. God's design is God's design. And that's absolutely correct. Absolutely. God knows what's best. God knows. And when a wife is fulfilling her role well, and then when a husband is fulfilling his role well, then that's when we truly find a God-honoring, thriving, joyful happy marriage. But at the very least, your call remains your call. Fulfill your own role well. Wives, how are you doing? What would your husband say? What would God say? Wayne Mack has some suggestions for the God-honoring wife. Here's a few of them to think about. Make the home a safe place, a place of encouragement, comfort, understanding, and refuge. Don't use jokes about your husband or cut him down. Don't constantly remind him of his faults, mistakes, and failures. Be trustworthy and dependable. Maintain a good attitude. Discuss things lovingly, openly, and honestly. Be satisfied with your position, your possessions, and your God-given tasks. Be long-suffering, very forgiving, and patient. Show an interest in your husband's problems and concerns. Be an industrious, frugal, diligent, ambitious, and creative member of the team. Offer suggestions, advice, and corrections when needed in a loving way. Keep yourself beautiful, especially the inner person. Maintain a good spiritual life. Cooperate with your husband in raising the children. Build loyalty to your husband and the children. Be grateful to him. Show him your appreciation of him and show confidence in his decisions. Those are just a few things to think about. A man named Bishop Taylor said this, A good wife is heaven's last best gift to a man his angel of mercy, his gem of many virtues, his box of jewels, her voice, his sweetest music, her smiles, his brightest day, her kiss, the guardian of innocence, her arms, the pale of his safety, her lips, his faithful counselors, and her prayers, the ablest advocates of heaven's blessing on his head. And I say amen to that. Wives, would your husband say that about you? That's the question. Proverbs 12.4 says, A wife of noble character is her husband's crown. May there be many crowns here this morning. And then Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. May there be many excellent wives here this morning who are pursuing excellence for the glory of God. This matters. This lasts. This pleases God. This is what spirit-filled wives who are in the will of God, who love God, and who are seeking to glorify God, this is what they do. May God speak to our hearts today. Husbands, next time, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word of truth. Thank you for these challenges to us that hit us 
where we need it most in our marriage relationship, Lord. So I pray that um, wives would be convicted and encouraged, that uh, husbands would also be convicted and encouraged, that we would have ears to hear what you have for us, and that we would indeed be a spirit-filled church that's in your will, seeking to glorify you, and that that would show in everything that we do, and especially in our marriage relationships. So Lord, speak to us. May your truth sink in. Give us ears to hear for your glory. Build strong marriages here at Faith Community Church for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.